You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay, it's time now for the Bible reading. Uh, I'm going to read now from the Bible. From first reading today is from the book of Psalms, which is actually Psalm 2. And then we're going to have a second reading from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Um, but initially, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son today. I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up at a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the second reading is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. This is God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them, anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one I will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And that is God's word. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. Uh, if you find it useful, there is uh, an outline on the welcome card so you know where we're heading. Um, let's pray as we come to think about Psalm number two. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful promises that you hold out uh, in your word. And so we pray that you would help us to, to be uh, confirmed again in our faith, to be reminded of the things that you have said in the past, and to see how they're still true for us today as your people. Amen. Our world is raging against God. In many, uh, many countries, Christians face great persecution. In fact, North Korea is considered one of the worst countries to be a Christian. If you're identified as a believer, you're likely to be tortured or even just killed on the spot. The North Korean regime sees Christians as a threat to the governments and so to the nation. And they believe that by treating Christians this way, they are actually just keeping the country safe. But in fact, they are raging against God. Our own government in Victoria continues to marginalise Christian voices in the public square and has all but redefined how society is supposed to view marriage, sexuality and gender. And many politicians would believe that they're just creating a more tolerant and open society. But in many ways, they are raging against God and his good design. Those who attack and mock Christianity, who caricature God as a moral monster, they believe they're just educating people about a, a proper, noble, scientific, secular worldview and how to live well. But they're actually raging against God the creator who made them and loves them. Those who demand that Christians just keep their opinions to themselves and fall in line with whatever social agenda is popular at the time are actually raging against God. And even those who just want to be left alone, don't want to think about religion, they just want to live their lives how they want to live them, they too are raging against God. These attacks against God can occur on a global level, on a national level, but also on a personal level. They occur in our schools, in our workplaces and even in our homes. And sometimes it can feel like the enemies of God are winning. Their rage is so vast and intense and scary. We might fear that we're on the losing side, we're on the wrong side of history. We might fear that God has abandoned us. We might fear the losses that we'll have to endure personally. We might even fear that somehow we are the ones who have gotten it all wrong. Well, Psalm 2 was written thousands of years ago to address these very concerns. And the answers that, they, uh, the answers that Psalm 2 provides are just as powerful today as they were back then. 
for this afternoon, we're going to see that God isn't afraid of people raging against him because he has established his king. And so God's people need not fear either. Let's start off by looking at our first point, God and the kings of Israel. The psalm begins by stating that the peoples of the world are rebelling against God and his king. Have a look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? This includes all of humanity and they're conspiring against God. And this conspiring isn't just kind of about them quietly plotting. It's, it's kind of tumultuous there. They're rumbling and raging against God. The kings and rulers are mentioned as well, which suggests that there's a level of organisation going on here. This is a combined effort. Everyone is involved. And it's not just against God, but also against God's anointed one. In the Bible, people were anointed with oil when they were set apart for a special job. In this case, the psalmist is speaking about the king of Israel, who was a kind of super special anointed man set aside for a super special job. In verse 3, the nations are quoted as saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They feel oppressed by God and his king. They want to get rid of them both. But if you know your ancient history, then this idea might seem a little bit quaint. I mean, even at its pinnacle, Israel wasn't a large and powerful nation. Yes, it was famous. It had its moments of greatness, but it was never an empire like Babylon or Egypt or Assyria. So why would the nations be raging against Israel? Would they even know that Israel exists? What this psalm is telling us though is that the God of Israel is in fact boss of the whole world. And so his king is therefore his representative ruler over the whole world. That means the whole world ultimately needs to submit to the king of Israel. And so any attack on Israel is in fact an attack on God's universal reign. Even to ignore Israel or to mock her king is an attack on God himself. Now is God worried about this combined worldwide attack on him? We see his response in verses 4 to 6. Check out verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Is God worried? Of course not. And why not? Because he's the ruler of the world. He's in control. That's why the psalm starts with this question, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Surely they can't win. And how do we know that their rebellion is pointless? Check out verse 6. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is a poetic way of referring to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill or mountain and it was the chosen city of God and it's called God's holy mountain. And the reason why God can laugh in heaven is because he's appointed a king in Jerusalem. No matter how much the nations try to resist God and his king, they will fail because God has firmly established his ruler and he has installed his king. Let's take a look at the next three verses and see what God has declared to this king. 
check out verses 7 to 9 where the king himself actually speaks. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, that I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So we learn three things here about this king. He's God's son. He will inherit the nations and he will judge the nations. And this idea that the king is God's son comes from the promises that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what Stuart read out for us earlier. God promised that David would find rest from all of his enemies and that his kingdom would be firmly established. And then God promised something, some special things about David's own offspring. Let's zoom in on verses 12 to 15. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So God promised that a descendant of David would rule forever and that this descendant would be called God's own son. And so Psalm 2 is picking up on this idea. The king of Israel is the son of God. And not only will his kingdom be an everlasting kingdom, it will be a worldwide kingdom. And so the people of the world need to decide how are they going to treat God's king. Have a look at verses 10, 11 and 12. Therefore you kings be wise. Be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The the kings, the rulers, just the regular people of the earth, they must all accept the king of Israel as their own king because if they reject him, they'll be destroyed. They have to kiss the sun, which is a sign of loyalty. And if they do so, they'll be blessed as they take refuge in him. So then, who is this king that the psalm is speaking about? Which king of Israel? Which descendant of David? Well, as you might know, if you read through the rest of the Bible, you see that the kings of Israel failed. So this brings us to our second and shortest point. So David's own son, Solomon, he started off well, he was a great king for a time, but he was an idolater. And after him, the kingdom was divided into two, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And none of the kings lived up to the standards of David. And ultimately, God punished them. The Babylonian Empire came, conquered the land and took the Jews into exile. The monarchy came to an end, never to be restored. The anointed one failed. And this is actually a theme that the book of Psalms wrestles with. 
You might remember last week I said that the 150 Psalms are actually gathered into five separate books. And so the first book focuses on King David. He's the greatest king, celebrating how wonderful he is. Then book two ends with Psalm 72, which is about David's son Solomon. And it asks that God would bless his reign. But then in book three, things take a bit of a dark turn. It ends with Psalm 89, which laments the failure of the monarchy. The psalmist even cries out in verse 49 and says, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Book four has psalms related to the time of exile in Babylon. And it begins to look to God as the one who will provide the security, the restoration they're looking for. And finally, book five is an affirmation of how God is the true king. Psalm 145 opens with the words, I will exalt you, my God, the king. And it ends with these words, The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Can you see that there's a progression? There's a progression of kingship across the 150 psalms, across the Psalter. Now, not every single psalm or kind of mention of David, God in kingship, fits perfectly in this. But overall, we see that there's a progression as God's people wrestled with this crisis of the monarchy failing and going into exile, seeing that the hope of Israel shifts to their divine king. That's all well and good. But if the Davidic kings fail, does that mean that God's promise in Psalm 2 failed? Well, have a listen to this prophecy given by an angel to a young woman. You'll be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Maybe you knew I was going to head there eventually and talk about Jesus, right? But do you see all the links as the angel is speaking to Mary, saying, Mary, you're going to have this child called Jesus and he picks up all these ideas from 2 Samuel 7, from Psalm 2. He's speaking of the king. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the true king. He's both man and God. So he fulfills both of those hopes in the Psalms. He he is the Davidic king, but he's also the divine king who will never disappoint. It's quite beautiful how Jesus can fulfill both of these threads that are found across the Psalter. And he can do this because he's the true and ultimate anointed one. In Hebrew, the Mashiach, the Messiah. So let's read back through Psalm 2 again and see how it makes sense in light of Jesus being the King. This is our third main point, God and King Jesus. As we saw before, the peoples of the world rebel against God and his King, against Jesus. And sometimes these attacks are quite obvious, like the persecution of Christians in North Korea, Nigeria, Afghanistan. You might see it in the latest book or article or TikTok video by a sceptic who's seeking to discredit Jesus and his followers. 
Yet this rebellion also takes place at the level of our own individual attitudes. In fact, that's where it starts. You know, we ourselves try to get rid of God to push him out of our lives. Perhaps we think God is oppressive. We try to escape his chains, his shackles. It's ultimately about rejecting Jesus. Many people feel that Jesus' aim, his purpose in coming was just to take away our freedom and to control us and to make us unhappy, to make life boring and miserable. And so people rebel. It doesn't even have to be a conscious rebellion because whether we know it or not, we can reject Jesus as king just by our everyday actions. But the truth is, rebellion against God and his king is pointless. I mean, look again at verses 4, 5 and 6. I mean, God's not worried when people resist him. He simply laughs and points to Jesus, who is the king that he has installed on his holy mountain. And the key event that proves that Jesus is the anointed one is his resurrection. The Apostle Paul was well aware of this and when he was declaring the good news about Jesus to his fellow Jews, he said this in Acts chapter 13. I tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Paul knows that the resurrection is what ultimately proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the one who rules over God's kingdom. That's because he's the only man who's ever passed through death to everlasting life. He's the only one who can reign forever, who can reign on David's throne forever. And so if, if even death can't defeat Jesus, then how on earth do the nations think they can defeat Jesus? God is confident he sits in heaven and he laughs at the pathetic attempts of humans to resist him. But it's not really a joke, is it? Because judgment will come and those who continue to resist him will find that God is in control. He's promised the world to King Jesus. When we look at verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2, we can see that they're most properly spoken to Jesus. He's God the Father's true Son because he's the eternal Son who came to earth as a man. He's both perfect man and God. And he's able to rule forever and to receive the nations as his inheritance, the world as his possession. Therefore, Jesus has the right to judge the world. In fact, he must judge the world because any resistance against him, even secret resistance, is an affront to his glorious reign. But some of you might be wondering, why is Jesus so hung up about this? I mean, where's the loving Jesus that we see in the Gospels? I mean, surely Jesus would not never judge anyone, right? I think we struggle with the idea of Jesus judging because as much as we like the idea of justice, Justice is a wonderful thing. We live in an age where we question God's right to rule over us and to tell us how it is. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We, we want justice on our terms according to what we think is just. I mean, many who believe in God 
really just believe that he is a life coach who's there to empower us to be our best, to have our best life. We've become so independent and focused on our individual rights, we've forgotten about God's rights. When he's the creator, he can do what he pleases. He's established Jesus as his king. Jesus isn't like the king of England, whatever you might think of him. You you can simply humour him and pay lip service in the hope that he'll stay over there and not come and annoy us here. He's not the Prime Minister that we can praise him when he does what we want him to do but then when he doesn't do what we want then we attack him and want to get rid of him. You can't just ignore Jesus and hope that he'll stay away. You you can't just elect a new Jesus. To reject him, to resist him is to attack his right to rule. It's to attack God. It's to attack a well-established reality. It's a dangerous thing to do. Now, for God is the giver of life and to cut ourselves off from him is to cut ourselves off from life. This is his world, his universe and if we want to keep living in it, we need to accept his rule. Unless we accept Jesus as God's anointed one, we will be dashed to pieces like pottery. So that means the people of the world, every single human needs to make a response. There are two choices either reject Jesus and face his wrath or accept Jesus and find refuge in him. Check out verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. This is not a a fear that's born out of terror but out of awe and wonder. It's actually marvel at who Jesus really is, who God really is. We marvel at the might and power and beauty and goodness and majesty and wisdom and graciousness of our God. We celebrate his rule with trembling. We rejoice in reverence, acknowledging that our God is a consuming fire, yet he has made a way for us to approach him without being consumed. That should leave us in awe. That should cause us to shout in praise. Revere the Lord who made you and loves you. And then check out verse 12. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Not only are people supposed to fear God, they're also supposed to kiss the son of God, to kiss the king. It's an act of loyalty and allegiance. It's humbly submitting to him, willingly submitting to him. We do this by putting our trust in Jesus. And when we do so, we are blessed because we're taking refuge in him. How is it that Jesus can give us refuge? It's because he died on the cross in our place. He took God's judgment upon himself and died the death that we deserve. As we learned in Psalm 1, Jesus perished for us so that we might be preserved and presented to God as righteous. We take his righteousness and he takes our sinfulness. And so this means that, yes, Jesus is the king of the world who will judge, but he's also the saviour of the world who died to rescue us. God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to suffer our punishment. And so if we trust in Jesus, we turn to him and acknowledge that he's the king, 
then we'll be saved. That's what it means to find refuge in him, to have faith in Jesus. So can you start to see then how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 operate as a combined introduction to the whole Psalter? In Psalm 1 we're shown two paths, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. But we know that the way of the righteous demands perfection, something we can't do. And so Psalm 2 shows us how there's another way to avoid destruction, to avoid the destruction that lies at the end of the path of wickedness, to take refuge in God's anointed one, the one who rules the whole world. Our hope for salvation lies in King Jesus. So perhaps we could take Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as lenses, kind of like in your glasses for reading the Psalter. And when you do that, that will help you to, on the one hand, identify God's wisdom for life that's found in his writings, but also learn more about God's Messiah who gives life. If you like, we can be on the lookout for good rules, but also for the good ruler. Here's here's one more go, okay. Psalm 1 prompts us to be wise for life and Psalm 2 prompts us to be wise for salvation. Getting back to the content of our psalm now, we see that whoever has accepted Jesus will find that they don't have to be afraid of God's judgment or afraid of those who still rebel against God. God has made Jesus his king and so God's people need not fear. So that brings us to our fourth and final point, Jesus will prevail. Again, I've asked someone to draw a picture of this psalm. As I said last week, the psalms are meant to capture our imagination, to draw out our creative side. So I hope you're maybe even drawing some pictures at home as you think about the psalms. And this image shows the, the nations raging, yet the cross and the crown of Christ are firmly established on the hill to remind us that we need not fear. This is true for all Christians through all ages. The first Christians, they faced some pretty tough times. But because they trusted that Jesus will prevail, they were able to persevere and not be consumed by fear. In fact, they themselves drew upon Psalm 2 for their encouragement. They knew that Jesus was the king that was spoken of and so it meant they didn't need to fear those who raged against Jesus. But also Psalm 2 reminded them that they had to continue to take refuge in Jesus. Let's look at those two ideas. First of all, Peter and John, the apostles, they boldly uh, boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the risen Lord and they kept getting them into trouble with the Jewish leaders. So on one occasion they arrested them and commanded them not to speak about Jesus anymore. But listen to what happened next. This is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It's amazing that in their prayer, they quote Psalm 2. They get it. They see how it applies. They know that Jesus is the Lord's anointed one and even when Herod and Pilate had him crucified, they weren't beating God. They were just acting out the picture that we get from this psalm. They opposed God but they could not defeat him. Even death could not defeat Jesus. Jesus is alive even today and reigns in heaven. Let's just pause for a moment here and just consider how radical this concept is. The nations of the earth rage against God and his response is to make a Jewish man king in Jerusalem. When you think about it that way, it almost sounds a little bit ridiculous, doesn't it? A little bit impotent. Like if you were God and wanted to make it clear, hey everybody, I'm in charge, you'd maybe do something a bit more spectacular than making a Jewish man a king in Jerusalem. Yet Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who has come to save a people from every nation. He's not just the saviour of the Jews, he's the saviour of the Gentiles too. And Dana shared with us today about the important work of international mission to Jewish people. We've got to remember we can't separate out Jesus' Jewishness from his role as Messiah. It's from this small beginning that we have the worldwide movement of Christianity. And so Psalm 2 makes it clear to us that as we read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we need to do so with Christian eyes, but also messianic eyes. Jesus is the true king of Israel. That's what makes him the king of the world. And so Christians don't have to fear those who rage against him because they will ultimately fail. And we don't have to worry what others might do to us. We may not be called to renounce our faith or be punished. We may not have to fear being killed like our brothers and sisters overseas. But no matter what people do to us, we will prevail because Jesus will prevail. We may lose friends and family. We may lose jobs, our homes. We may lose our health. We may miss out on opportunities in life. But nothing can separate us from Jesus. Even death cannot defeat us because Jesus himself has already beaten death and if we take refuge in him, we'll be safe. Now, of course, all this means that if you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, well, that means you are still raging against Jesus and you need to stop that before it's too late. You can't resist him in the end. He's unbeatable. But he's not trying to beat you. He's not trying to beat you into submission, force you to bend the knee and submit. He's inviting you to join him. He's inviting you to join him in his messianic kingdom. A future time and a future place of peace and blessing and joy in this this messianic kingdom, we can enjoy a foretaste of that now as believers when we can experience forgiveness, the joy of fellowship with other believers following Jesus now. So why not accept his offer, find refuge in him, the good and loving king?
The second truth that comes out of the fact that Jesus will prevail is that we as Christians need to continue to take refuge in him. Listen to these words of Jesus spoken in Revelation chapter 2. This was his message to the church at Thyatira. Jesus said, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So Jesus himself takes the words of Psalm 2, verse 9, and applies them to Christians. I mean, these are words that are spoken ultimately about him, but he says that just as God the Father has given him this authority, he will share that authority to believers. But it requires us to overcome and to do Jesus' will until the end. The Christians that Jesus spoke this message to were just like us. They faced trials and temptations, pressure to submit to other gods, to submit to other people, to other things. They were attacked and pressured. And so Jesus invited them to overcome these attacks and to keep obeying him. And he calls us to do the same thing. So we need to make sure that we keep turning away from our sins, turning to Jesus in faith. We need to make sure that we don't see following Jesus as being shackled down. You know, we should trust his way of living, even when it's tricky, even when we're not always clear. We should do this rather than plotting to throw off his chains and shackles like the rulers of verse 3. Sometimes following Jesus is hard. Sometimes following Jesus is costly. Sometimes we're not even sure that he actually knows what's best for us. That's why we need to keep trusting in him. He's already proven himself. We need to kiss the sun and remember that as we take refuge in him, that is how we will be blessed and live the blessed life. In fact, that brings us back to Psalm 1 again. If you've got a Bible open, have a look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1, see how it starts. It says, blessed is the one. And it goes on to speak of the righteous path which involves meditating on God's law. It's a nice little structure there that uh, Psalm 1 begins with blessing, Psalm 2 ends with blessing. Again, it shows, I think they're meant to be a combined introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And they reveal that blessing is found in devotion to God and his word but also impatiently waiting for his Messiah to return. This can be hard to do. Which is why we need the book of Psalms. See, as we read these songs of praise, these poems of sorrow, we find the words that we need, the mindset and attitude that we need as we journey through this life. These poems help us to make sense of our own experiences. They give us the words to cry out to God in in praise or pain, They provide us comfort that the Messiah has indeed come and he will come again, he will one day return. And so the world around us may rage, but we can find refuge in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Psalm 2, for the wonderful hope that it holds out that you have installed your King on Mount Zion, on your holy mountain.
And who would have ever thought that you would do that by installing him on a cross? By him being put to death and crucified. But it was in that act, in his death and resurrection, that he was revealed to be the saving king. The king who was able to gather a people of his own from every tribe and nation. And so as we take refuge in Jesus now, may we know that whatever raging might be going on, that we will be preserved. Nothing can remove us from Jesus. That he is able to protect us. And may we wait patiently for his return when he will bring justice and make this world perfect the way that you'd always intended it to be. Amen.